Welcome to episode three of the Filmumentaries podcast. I hope you enjoyed the last episode with um, actor, singer, storyteller and friend of mine, Giles Torreira. It was really nice to talk to him uh, as always and uh, good to catch up in this lockdown. This time we have an interview that I conducted during the lockdown as well with puppeteer and animatronics engineer Tim Rose. Um, a good friend of mine uh, from work, Dan, lined this one up for me. By some coincidence, he knew one of Tim's family members and kindly put me in touch. We actually don't live that far away from each other uh, down here in the southeast of England. If circumstances had been a little bit different, uh, maybe I would have gone and interviewed him on on video as well. But as it was, I had a chance to speak with him over FaceTime. Uh, he recorded it locally on his iPhone for me as well, which was of great help. Tim was really good fun to talk to, actually. Um, uh, I really enjoyed digging a little bit deeper into what it takes to perform with puppets. Things got a little bit emotional at points, which you'll hear later on. Uh, anyway, I hope you enjoy it, and I'll be back at the end of our chat for a bit more jabbering on. And, uh, yeah, maybe talk about what's coming up in the next episode. I can see your labyrinth poster just up to your to your right there. Very cool. Yeah, it's the only only thing I really have up in the house. <laughs> Everybody thinks my house is going to be filled with Star Wars stuff, but uh, it uh, it says thank you, Tim Jim Henson. That's why. <laughs> ah, wow, that's very cool. We we got given it at the rap party, and I always remember my friend Jane asked me. She said, "Oh, you got the poster. You got to get Tim to sign it." And I was I was very embarrassed in those days about doing anything like that you know the, it was always if you worked with somebody you were comrades they weren't like your idols or your stars or something you know it was like a whole different atmosphere so I was always really embarrassed to ask for anything but she said you gotta get him to sign it for you so I said okay so I went over and got him to sign it for me and I'm I'm glad I listened to her on that one now <laughs> I didn't realize I'd lose the yeah, chance to get him to sign things yeah. quite so soon. So, Yeah, well, all these years later, it's something really to sort of cherish and look back on, isn't it? What was your first experience of performing? Did you perform at school and have an affinity for it? Or was it something you took to straight away? Um, I always claimed that I got started in puppeteering at university. And um, my my biggest fan, my mother... <laughs> When I would be back home, she'd always get the local papers, you know, to write that uh, the famous son was home and all that business, you know. And uh, having said that, in one of those, my second grade school teacher showed up at my mother's house with the photograph of me doing the puppet show in second grade, <laughs> which I had completely forgotten about. I remembered it after I saw the picture, but uh, yeah, it was mainly um, deciding what I wanted to be when I grew up. And uh, I went to Ulster County Community College because I still didn't know what I wanted to focus on or what direction I wanted to go in. And because it was a local school, I could drive there from my house and it didn't cost a lot of money. But what was wonderful was it gave me the chance to experiment. I joined the theater club there. I took art courses. I took writing courses, you know, all that. And um, the director of the theater department had started um, doing Renaissance fairs out in California. And they were picking up, they were becoming quite popular because it, it fit in with the hippie ethos of um, we're going to handcraft our things for the fair, that nothing manufactured is going to be allowed in and all that sort of thing. And we performed old medieval plays, but... When I started researching the old medieval fairs, I kept hitting Bartholomew fairs in the UK that used to be held on the frozen Thames, and they kept talking about Punch and Judy shows, so just as a, a whim, I decided, oh, I'll do a Punch and Judy show. <laughs> Not knowing how hard it is to do puppetry, I just figured I'd do one, <laughs> you know. And um, it was, I'd grown up, with the mom-and-pop marionette company, the Herrick Marionettes, who used to come around the schools and do marionette shows. And I knew that they lived locally, 
So I went over to their house and knocked on the door and said, oh, I know you don't know me, but uh, I was wondering if you could teach me how to make a puppet. <laughs> Figuring that they would say, thank you very much, get out of here, goodbye. And instead they uh, invited me in the house and took me down to the cellar. And the walls were completely covered with marionettes in plastic bags going all the way back to their vaudeville days when they were my age. <laughs> and when I saw these fabulous creations, I mean, I instantly fell in love with the puppets and everything on the walls. You know, I want to make something like that. But it was also, I think, the fact that here was these two people who were doing something that looked like it was so much fun, but they were able to afford this nice house they were living in. And <laughs> the whole thing, it's like, you mean I don't have to become an accountant to earn a living? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can do something else and still earn a living? <laughs> it, it was quite a revelation as a young man. And I found that with the puppets, I could sculpt, I could draw, I could act, I could, you know, I, I didn't have to give up anything to be what I wanted to be when I grew up. I could, it somehow <laughs> ticked all the right boxes for me, so. Amazing. And when something like the Muppets arrived in your life, I bet that was a huge inspiration to you. And I mean, how did you feel when you first saw the Muppets? Oh, well, I... Uh because I had become interested in puppets at that time and they were on our TV sets, I would uh, sit on the floor two foot in front of the TV so I could see every time an arm rod came in and every time, you know, <laughs> to work out just exactly the um, the mechanics and technicalities of how that was being done. Yeah, I mean, to, to me, I'm, I'm many kids of my generation, I'm sure, would have reacted in the same way. To me, it kind of open my eyes to a different form of entertainment but I never really considered it as a young age how they weren't real if you know because there's something so captivating about the way those puppets were operated and puppeteered and and designed as well a lot of people um, what, what assume you, that they were yeah, people what, in suits and yeah you know I've heard a lot of interesting things from what like you say what kids saw and what they thought they were looking at <laughs> most of them got it entirely wrong without technically how it was being done but yeah yeah well i mean you know there have been you know attempts in in the past and we'll talk about the dark crystal and things like that later perhaps but you know to 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 disguise the human aspect of puppeteering but there's something so um captivating about the muppets what what do you put that down to what what did jim henson and co get right about the design and the operation of those puppets. They they, they talk about um, prostitution being the oldest <laughs> <laughs> oldest employment in the world, but in fact they argue that puppetry was older than that. So there there is hmm. a fundamental thing <laughs> telling stories with these inanimate objects that we then um, believe come alive. Uh, what the Muppets got right, Jim was a complete stickler for eye focus and mouth sync. If you saw that puppet, you had to believe that puppet was alive and those words were coming out of that puppet's mouth. And a lot of the mom and pop puppetry and things, you know, it's like <laughs> the puppets sort of stood up where they wiggled around, but they didn't have the... Um, that final touch of magic where you just believed every single movement that they did and you felt as if you could think what they were thinking. <laughs> and that's, that's, yeah. it was a combination of, um, it was Jim's performance and the performance of the people that he trained. And it was Don Celine who took Jim's rather rough puppet figures and gave them that final touch of class gave him that perfect visual imagery that went along with the movement that created the final magic that people saw yeah it is a big question and I, I often think you know I watch my daughter one of my daughters now is five and she will watch the Muppets and she'll be just staring at Kermit longingly she's in love with with Kermit you know and yet he his only articulation really is that mouth and and the hands and, and you know, just the arms, isn't it? Really, there's no blinking, there's nothing else. But you're just you are drawing ah, it, drawn well, in. Well, now there's a 
there's a huge amount of movement in the hand. Mm, <laughs> the yeah. eyes go up and the eyes go down and the mouth curls and the <laughs> yeah, there's he little gets, subtleties yeah, like you there. Say, definitely, something but... that simple, he gets an amazing amount of expression. <laughs> Yeah. And you ended up working with Jim on uh, The Dark Crystal, didn't you? That must have been... I mean, is that still... I guess that must still be the the most puppets ever existing in, in one project, right? I mean, that must have been a huge undertaker, a huge challenge. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there's anything since. Oh, mm. well, uh, uh, what was the American one? The... What, Team America or something? Team America. Like that? Yeah. That was all puppets. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I, I was trying to think, like you say, with that dark crystal. Certainly, at the time, there was there had never been a movie told entirely by inanimate characters, as opposed to having actors with the puppets as background or also characters, you know, with them. Uh, it was the pressure was on. I mean, if, I don't know if you've read any of the history of the Dark Crystal or how much Jim went through or how the producers tried to shut it down and Jim mm -hmm. had to risk the entire company and buy the rights to his own movie just so he could finish making it and showing it and <laughs> you know the risks the risks involved at the time were phenomenal the producers considered the Dark Crystal to be a um, failure because of course when you release a movie, unless it makes its money back in the first three weeks, it's considered a flop. And I always say to people, it's like, well, okay, we worked on that movie and it took it a long time to get up to speed and the people to understand what they were watching and all of that. But 30 years later, people are still talking about that movie and there were four other movies being made at EMI Studios and I can't even remember the names of them. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, was it a success or wasn't it a success? How, how do we measure success? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Certainly not by uh, weekend box office, in my opinion. I mean, you know, something like Dark Crystal is amazing that it's had this life and it's inspired, you know, a new generation to the point when we now have a TV series, you know, based on those stories and, and it's still going on and on as as of many of the, the films that you've been involved with. Um, you, you, of course, worked in in the Star Wars world, uh, starting with Return of the Jedi. I think what a lot of people wouldn't realise about you, um, apart from knowing that you were involved with, you know, the puppeting of Admiral Akbar and Salacious Crumb and Sice Noodles, but you're actually involved in the creation and the development of the animatronics and the puppets, weren't you as well? Oh, yeah, very much so. Yeah, and how did that start? You were with Phil Tippett, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I, I got the job because a friend of mine, Mike McCormick, had already left Muppets. I was still working at Muppets when they when they had left. Uh, he was very heavily involved in the Dark Crystal as well, he and Tony McVeigh. And Mike was working out there and he had actually made a Sice Noodles nightclub singer. But he had made her as a classic marionette. And he was on a scaffold rig with 10 foot long marionette lines over the top of her trying to you know operate the character and see how it worked and she was a 5 foot tall marionette so she was very heavy 60 70 pounds and he lost his balance and fell off the scaffold and he broke mm. his arm mm. and that's when he called me up i i had just left muppets cuz i was um <laughs> i was rather upset that um I asked Jim, I wanted to be a puppeteer on the um, Fraggles, on Fraggle Rock. And Jim basically said he felt my true value to the company was working in the workshop as an animatronics guy. And as a young guy, I was felt really hurt that he didn't mm. think I was a good enough performer. It's only with age and looking back at that whole time that I realized that from his standpoint, he could find 10 guys who could puppeteer, but to find a guy who could actually design the stuff that was being designed at that time <laughs> was a much more tricky thing because they didn't exist. You know, we, we were we were making it up as we went along. So the <laughs> number of people doing that at the time, you could count on one hand. <laughs> you know? mm. And um, 
So when Mike fell off the scaffolding, I had just left Muppets because I was upset that I wasn't being allowed to puppeteer. So that was it. I was going away. <laughs> I threw my toys out of the pram and ran out the door. And while I was sitting in New York going, what have you just done? You've given up. You've just quit working for the biggest com puppet company in the world when all you want to do is puppets. <laughs> you must be completely insane. <laughs> and um, Mike called up and said, well, if you can get out here to California and interview, maybe you can take my place working in Phil Tippett's workshop. Mm -hmm. So I... Um, well, that's a funny one too. The uh, the producer, I actually called them up because I didn't have any money at the time <laughs> <laughs> and asked if they, they'd be able to uh, fly me out to California to do the interview because I was in New York City. Mm -hmm. And they said, no, they didn't really feel that, you know, it was worth that much of an investment. So mm -hmm. I made them a deal. I said, if I come out and interview and you give me a job on the movie, then you'll reimburse me for my plane ticket. But if you don't like me, then you don't have to pay me for the plane ticket. And as producers, they actually like that. <laughs> this guy's kind yeah. of cheeky, isn't he? You know, so <laughs> we like cheeky chappies. So uh, <laughs> I flew myself out, but I did get <laughs> paid back for the ticket because I got the job. Nice. And. Um, George Lucas and Jim Henson. George Lucas was um, involved in the Dark Crystal, you know, involved in the labyrinth. Uh, he and Jim were very closely associated with each other. But certainly of the two, Jim was much further advanced in the animatronic side of things. And when I got to Phil's workshop, I found that a lot of the um, the California ways of doing things were still in force in that workshop. And um, I had also been fired off of uh, Greystoke Lord of the Apes by Rick Baker mm. because what I'd learned about working with people on the Muppets where everybody was open and everybody had a valuable idea wasn't the way things were done in California. Uh -huh. <laughs> in California, the boss had the good ideas and the rest of you did what the boss told you to. Mm -hmm. And unless the boss asked you for your opinion, you kept your mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> but coming from Muppets, where Jim always wanted to hear our ideas, I gave Rick Baker my ideas and he fired me off the production. Wow. And one of the things that I got fired for was I was trying to convince them that the close-up gorillas should be done as hand puppets because you can get more movement out of the puppet than you can out of the full body suit. And um, so leaving there, being unemployed, walking into Phil Tippett's workshop, and I saw Akbar sitting there being done the way they were doing the gorillas on Greystoke. And <laughs> having known that Californians liked firing me for my ideas, <laughs> I went up to Phil Tippett anyway, and I said, Phil, I really do think that we could do a really nice job if we just pulled the close-up head off of the table, which is the way the Californian guys were doing it, and made him a hand puppet. And I picked up the head and just sort of stuffed my hand into the head and started moving around with it on the floor. And I guess I showed Phil enough doing that that he said, um, Okay, well, run with it. But if I don't like it, I'm going to fire you. You know, so <laughs> <laughs> so I, I got <laughs> to make the two versions of Admiral Akbar, the establishing shot version that I was in, but also the hand puppet that did most of the dialogue scenes for the movie. Mm. And at that time, that was um, a better way of doing it. But it wasn't the way of doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wasn't it also your suggestion that? Um that particular character would be Akbar rather than they had another they had another character in mind to play that part originally. The character Reeves, he was a um he had a mouth kinda of like a camel and three eyes on stalks, three long eyes on stalks. And said for you know, what I'd learned from Jim Henson for good characterization, it was spot-on eye focus on the characters and 
spot-on mouse sink. And when George would come around at nighttime and look at this stuff and we'd all talk about things, you know, I said, well, the problem with him being a major character, especially being one of the good guys' major characters, is when you picked him up and pointed him at the camera, you could never get all three eyes looking at you when you looked at him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, mentally in people's minds, that character is like Marty Feldman with his one eye going off in a funny direction. You know, it's mm. like you're never going to feel totally confident that he's looking at you when he's looking at you. And that's mm -hmm. going to give people a mistrust of this character. And they they mm -hmm. won't even know it mentally. You know, it, it happens yeah. it happens mm -hmm. on a sub-level in our minds. But we just basically will not trust that character as much. Um, with Akbar, I, I made his eyes because um, one of the big problems, he's what we would call a wall-eyed character. Instead of being humanoid, where the eyes are in front and focused at a point, he had his eyes on the outside of his head, like a horse or something. And to get a wall-eyed character to have eye focus is extremely difficult. So what I did was um, playing with ma um, magnifying glasses. You know, they, they had these ones that were like half lenses where you could put them on a piece of paper and it would magnify the piece of paper when you laid it on there. It would pull the, the writing up into the lens. So I started playing with the eyes and turning up eyes on the lathe and I found out that using the outside of Akbar's eye as a lens by putting the pupil, carving that into the backside and leaving enough thickness in there, I could get a magnifying effect that would pull the the pupil and the iris, the, the focal point of the eye, mm -hmm. right out into the outside of the eye, which then allowed the eyes to then look together at a point in front. So, fast forward 30 years, and I'm now not being asked to do anything to make Akbar at all, I just happened to be in the workshop getting um, life casts for my carbon fiber helmet to go in the costume. But I was really curious to see how they were getting on with the character and what they were doing. With, had they made him into an old man? You know, I was really hoping he'd be much older than he was in the new <laughs> movies because I was really ready to <laughs> play the old, you know, oh, I've been in the wars, you know, all this sort of thing. <laughs> but... Um, they pretty much made him the way he was before, you know, saying, well, mm -hmm. Calamari lived for 400 years instead of 80 years. Uh -huh. Yeah, okay, all right, okay, you know, fine. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they said one of the things that we're really having problems with is Akbar's eyes. You know, we can look at him in the pictures, but when we make an eye, it just doesn't work. <laughs> and so I said, oh, well, you should talk to the guy that made him in the first place. To, really, do you know who he is? Do you know how to get in touch with him? They said, <laughs> yeah, I might do. It's me, assholes. <laughs> <laughs> so that was rather nice to be able to <laughs> help them. Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. That was my one contribution to the new Akbar was I drew out the whole way that I'd turned up the eyes on the lathe and created the the optical effect that got them to pull out and look at the camera, you know, so. How much do you think it helped them being back in, what, 1982, shooting Return of the Jedi? Uh, you know, how much did it help your performance given that you had engineered and created that that puppet? I mean, it must, surely must, there must be a connection there and you've had lots of practice with it and everything, as opposed to jumping into The Force Awakens where it's been created without your supervision and without you know, your 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 history with the character, let's say. Yes, and you touched on the aspect of the rehearsal. If you look at the old, you know, we, we didn't know there was ever going to be behind the scenes, <laughs> but there there is footage from those days behind the scenes of, of us rehearsing. And um, one of the ones the fans really liked was um, me with the hand puppet of Akbar, and I was trying to say, penetrate. Still, to achieve the desired credibility, there were two versions of Akbar. 
one for wide shots, and this one for close-ups. From the nearby moon of Endor. Here, puppeteer Tim Rose, who plays Admiral Akbar in the movie, works painstakingly to put mouth and words into perfect synchronization. Penetrated. Penetrated. Penetrate. Penetrate. Pen. No ship can penetrate it. Yeah. yeah. And penetrate well. starts with a P, so a P starts with your mouth closed. So you're hearing the sound, but the mouth is closed. But So when you're trying to say that with a puppet, the puppet's lips aren't moving, but you can hear the peas. So mm -hmm. <laughs> getting the timing on, on the movement of the mouth sink <laughs> yeah. so that you believe he's saying penetrate <laughs> was very difficult. And we were given full scripts. I was given, the whole time I was working on them in the workshop, and we must have had a week, two weeks after we'd come over to England with video playback just to rehearse everything. And we basically rehearsed and came up with all the action and the movement for the scenes ourselves and then took that in and presented it, presented the performance to the director who then said, like that, like that, don't do that, like that, you know, and that. Um, with the new ones, <laughs> here's where the mouse takes my house. We... Um, we're given one day's rehearsal in our costumes. It was the first time in 30 years I came on to set and didn't even know where the eyeline of my character was. Hmm. Um, we weren't allowed, in our one day, we weren't allowed to have videos because they were so terrified that anything would leak onto the internet before sure. the thing. That the whole fundamentals of how we rehearsed our performances and how we did our performances, they chopped our legs off. And I even set up a um, interview, an interview, I asked if I could talk to J.J. Abrams, mm -hmm. who's a very busy man in the middle of filming, I can assure you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he has exactly two seconds, so you have two seconds to say what you want to say. But... I asked if I could talk to him, and I just wanted to say everything I've just said to you, you know, about mm. I'm supposed to be doing animatronics here. I'm supposed to be really good at animatronics, and I'm feeling like a complete fool because <laughs> mm. I don't even know if I'm talking to John Boyega or I'm talking to his chest because I don't know where my eyes are, the most fundamental thing of Muppet performance. Mm -hmm. And I don't know the most fundamental thing while I'm on a camera doing a movie for the entire world. And um, before I had the meeting, my friend Adrian, I was talking to him and I told him what I'd done. <laughs> he just looked at me and he said... Tim, aren't you tired of getting fired off of movies by now? <laughs> and I thought about it. I thought about, would I be able to make any difference or any change at this point in this massive <laughs> steamroller yeah. proceeding? And thought, no, I stand a really big chance of getting myself in trouble and getting fired yet again. And um, probably very little chance of helping. But all of this is is um, comes from a place that you just want to do a good job, which is which is such a shame, isn't it? I mean, I work in live TV myself, and there have been many times where I've kind of just had to bite my lip because I know that I could do a better job, but I'm not given the resources or the time to do it. And in in some ways, it's a pride thing as well, isn't it? You just kind of have to give up that moment of pride and just kind of go, okay, it is what it is. I can't. Maybe next time, you know. Um, but then next time you you meet similar challenges. Mark Kermode's film review was on this morning and he's doing a review mm. of films you can see in lockdown. And one of the ones that's mm. been released for lockdown was the new Cats. Mm. And he momentarily touched on, well, all he really said was just a thing in passing where um, they made the movie, it was having problems, it wasn't being successful, so they took it to CG and did more with the CG. 
And I just went, well, exactly. Because over the course of my career, the first thing that went away was our rehearsal time. It, it used to be that um, when the camera turned over, when that 35 mil film was running through, that was the most expensive time of making any product. So you rehearsed everything. Everybody knew what they had to do, so you could do it all in one take. Because <laughs> that was the way to save money, was do it in one take, rehearse the hell out of it, and then do it in one take. And at some point, the rehearsal started going away. To save money, you know, rehearsal, you got to pay for the rehearsal day. So then rehearsal days all went away. And then um, the pre-planning went away and the storyboards went away because they all cost money. And then ended up, well, it doesn't really matter what we shoot because CG's here now and we'll fix it in post. So we'll just try and get anything at all and then we'll make it into something by fixing it all in post on CG. And that was exactly, you know, that was the ultimate. Maybe if they'd rehearsed Cats a bit, maybe if they'd <laughs> gotten a, a yeah. unified plan of a story they were going to tell, maybe if they did all these things that made a good movie, <laughs> they wouldn't have need to try to fix it by making the hair move differently with the CG. <laughs> or <laughs> but it's just... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a strange thing, isn't it, that idea of fixing in post, because ultimately it's going to take more time and probably cost more money because you're going to have to do so much more of it. I mean, it's... Five I mean, times, as, as but at that point, you're so desperate. You Money doesn't matter at the point they're fixing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, it now becomes yeah. all true. hands on deck. <laughs> They've done everything they can to screw it up. Now it's all hands on deck. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Sice Noodles, of course, got changed in the 97 special editions to a CG character, which Oh, you're trying to bring aged. me back under, back under point here. But it's aged terribly, hasn't it? I mean, it, 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 it from ninety the, the the you know the the CGI version of Sice Noodles from nineteen ninety seven has aged terribly. I mean, I still have I'm still fortunate enough to have the original versions of the of the films uh, on DVD and things. So, to me, the the performance that you were involved with with Mike Quinn, right at the time, was it with Sice Noodles? Yeah, um, that to me is the much better performance. A, it's a better song. B, it's a better performance. And and see, I think there's a tendency with computer right. graphics. Thank you for saying that. It was one of our carried away. It was one of our next worst performances. Mm. Because she was a reverse string marionette, and because the lines could get hooked in the train tracks and the floor, everything could be going really well, and you just caught a line or you missed some coordination between the two of us. And she just lost all believability and all life and went into a complete, I'm not allowed to say spastic mode anymore, but I don't know what, what you're allowed Meltdown. to say now. But <laughs> she she lost her life and just looked stupid and not mm -hmm. lovely. We got it. So w with rehearsal, we could do one out of 12 takes. We could do really well. And when we got the camera, we did the first take which was terrible, I mean, really abysmal. Couldn't everybody see that this take was unusable? Well, the director said, moving on. Hmm. And I had to say, please don't let this be. <laughs> After yeah. all the work, all the rehearsal we've done, don't let this be the moment that goes down in history as size noodles. And they gave us take two, which was better than the first take, but it wasn't the 12th take that we knew was there and we'd seen in rehearsal and we knew we could do again if we just yeah. got time. Now, Jim Henson, he would, all, all of Jim Henson's movies are edited together magic moments. He had what he called the magic moment. And that's, you've got brilliant sets, you've got a brilliant crew, you've got great performers, you've got great characters. And they all come together and you're just trying to shoot the script. But all of a sudden on this one take, somebody does something or it just coordinates with this other person doing their thing or something happens. This, this magic moment happens and it all comes together and then you know you're it's ready to move on. 
And he would give 30 takes, 50 takes. It's what it took. The producers are ripping their hair out. They're all bald by the end of a Jim Henson movie. But <laughs> he didn't care because he knew that in the end, when we edited it all together, it would be something that people would want to see. You know, mm-hmm. my my favorite story was Great Muppet Caper. Um, Frank Oz, who did Miss Piggy. He was in Diana Riggs' office, and she was away, and Miss Piggy was pretending to be the boss instead of the secretary. You know. She had her little dance routine, and she had to dance around the room and trip over the bin, I think, or fall into Diana Riggs' chair. And on take 78, because Frank, if he didn't like a take, because <laughs> he knew that people would move on even if he didn't like a take, so if Frank didn't like a take, he would just whip the puppet out of the bottom of the shop, ruining the edit Mm -hmm. to make it impossible to edit that into the movie and on take 78 Jim decided that the clapperboard was upsetting Frank because he was also a co-producer on the movie so he said what we're going to do is we're going to call this a new scene and we're doing take one (laughs) and at take 34 we got the shot the way Frank wanted it done and moved on. So, seventy-eight thirty-four is a hundred and blah, blah blah blah. Yeah. But that's why those movies are still watchable because every single yeah. edit in those movies is take whatever it had to be to get what we were trying to get. Yeah, it's interesting to sort of look at a, a Muppet movie like that. I mean, my family's favorite Christmas movie is the Muppets Christmas Carol. And we watch it every year. Some, I mean, my daughter watched it the other day and on a sunny day. It doesn't really matter. But, you know, we watch that and we can, when you watch a Muppet movie, you can sense the joy or at least the intention of that joy that the performers are trying to give to the audience. I mean, do you feel that joy when you're, when you're puppeteering? I mean, you've just described there like a hundred and something takes. There must be a lot of determination involved, uh, a lot of resolve to get to that point. <laughs> no we're just having that much fun and it comes through on camera <laughs> well that's good to hear <laughs> I, I, think, no, I think obviously you, you're talking about very highly skilled professionals and yeah, you know yeah, they're, yeah. they're doing their best um, one of the other things I think that makes the, the Muppets so magical especially the original Muppets <laughs> so the, the original crew was um, in theater, in acting, you were taught that the person who had the dialogue, the person who had the lines, was the focus on stage so that other people had to stay animated. But the trick was to not die on stage, but also not draw focus away from the intended focus at that moment. Mm -hmm. And then I went to work for Muppets. And in Muppets, the law of acting was you better do something funnier than me because I don't care if I'm the third character back. If I do something that draws focus, it's because you ain't doing your job well enough. (laughs) (laughs) So there was that um, camaraderie, but also professional competition of, you better be funnier than me or I'm going to steal your scene. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. You can sense that, though. Yeah, that's happening all the way through all those characters in there. They're all trying to get you to look at them. <laughs> Everybody bringing their A game to be yeah, yeah. to reach the top there. My favorite um, story of that one that I have hmm. to tell was uh, Michael Caine went with the ghost of Christmas past and he goes to the cemetery and I think he sees the um, name of the the woman that he let go, that he should have married but didn't do something. And he mm-hmm. sings this song to her. And um, when we watch that, Michael Caine, fabulous actor. No, I have two stories I'll tell about Michael Caine. The first one was, first day Michael Caine came on to set, we were all really excited because we've got a real star on set today, you know. And we were standing behind the camera and we were watching him there. And I distinctly remember 
people talking to each other behind the camera and going, you know, with the money he's getting paid, you'd think he could make more of an effort, don't you? <laughs> but what Jim always did and what Brian carried on was we were always allowed to go see dailies. And from 15 foot behind camera, we felt like he was coasting it, like he wasn't really doing the full job. We, we were worried that maybe he didn't respect us enough to bring his A-game to the movie. You don't do that with Muppets because mm. we'll, <laughs> we'll teach you not to bring your A-game. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so then we went to dailies, and instead of being 15 foot behind the camera, we were now five foot from Michael Caine and watching him on camera. And he wasn't doing the performance to the people behind the camera. He was doing the performance to the people who were watching the movie who were all five foot from him at the time. And to see the difference between what we saw at 15 feet and what you saw at five feet was very educational. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, buy, you totally buy that world he's living in there. I think that's the amazing thing. When you, when you, I suppose you're always running a risk when you have Muppets side by side with humans because you're asking to buy into to both of those worlds. But I think brilliantly pulled off in that film. Fantastic. And some actors could do it and some couldn't. In the Muppet show, there were actors who just totally there and totally into the, the world of being created. And some of them could not talk to the puppet. They had to, because the puppeteer underneath is saying the dialogue. <laughs> And they would talk to the puppet's feet instead of the puppet. No, no, you have to look at the puppet, you know, and they just didn't do it. But he obviously, he was not one of those. He totally loved the whole thing. Anyway, the other story was him singing that song about the, the girl he lost. And 200 hardened, cynical film technicians were all in tears. I mean, <laughs> what he did with that song in spite of the fact it wasn't in tune, in spite of the fact <laughs> all the things you could pick apart about it, we mm. were just blubbering like babies, you know, watching him <laughs> shoot that thing. And then we got to the crew screening, and it wasn't in the movie. And I went to Brian and I said, Brian, what the hell? Two, <laughs> 200 film technicians just crying like babies, you know, watching him do this thing. You captured a moment of movie magic that was absolutely unbelievable, and you didn't put it in the film. And he, Brian said, well, the movie is for kids. <laughs> and I said, every single one of those kids in the cinema has been brought for and their tickets paid for by the adults who are going to be sitting right next to it. Leave that mm -hmm. scene in for the adults. You know? <laughs> and I think I've heard, I haven't got the DVD, I think they put it in with the... I uh, did that, I'll have to check that with out. With the credits yeah. or something at the end. Uh-huh. It never got put in its place in the movie, right, but okay. I think they did do it kind of like a also around at the end of the movie or something. But Nice, nice. Yeah, I'll have to look out for that. I've never seen that. Um, how do you feel about the impact of your work? I mean, there are very few people that are involved with characters that become cultural icons. Of course, Akbar, the biggest one, I guess, out there. And of course, you have Salacious Crumb and Sy Snootles involved in that as well. I mean, obviously difficult because you don't know what it's like not to have experienced that. But do you, I mean, there must be a certain amount of pride to have been involved in things that people are still talking about now, these beloved characters, right? Leading question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. From an animatronics point of view, the one I was always proudest of, and I didn't care that he bombed in the cinema, and that was Howard the Duck. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. yeah. Because... Really effective. I yeah. I watched it back. I was doing um, uh, Wizards versus Aliens. I built this uh, character, the Necros King, the head of the aliens, and also got to puppeteering so that's my favorite is when I get to build something and take it through to performance sure. like I did with Akbar and um, I got my assistant who is running the radio controlled eyes I said you've got to watch Howard the Duck if you want to see how to do a puppet's eyes <laughs> the guy Steve Sleep who did my eyes on the Howard the Duck um, he just 
it's timing. <laughs> it's like good comedy, you know, it's all in the timing. And I mean the timing of the eye moves. All it is is universal eyes and eye blinks. I don't think we even had eyelids that followed the eyes like the later versions of animatronics did and all that. It was just hitting it at the right moment that kept that character alive. And in spite of I didn't even particularly care about how the character looked. I tried to change his looks actually before the movie, but um, we kept him alive in every single shot. <laughs> mm -hmm. And yeah, with Akbar, we kept him alive in every single shot. And for us, that's the... Um, it's the difference between puppeteers and actors is uh, when I was doing my own puppet shows, the I do the my Punch and Judy show that I'd done for the Renaissance Fair and all the puppets would bow and all the people would applaud and then I'd come out to take my bow and they'd, would you get out of the way? We're trying to look at the puppets guy. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, a, an actor would be very upset by that because their ego needs to be the thing. But for puppeteers, yeah. it's like our biggest compliment is when we disappear from your minds. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> but yeah. you totally buy into the illusion that we're trying to create for you. You forget that we even exist. And that's that's the ultimate compliment, is for us to be invisible. <laughs> oh, so that was actually the answer to your original question, because being a part of the iconic character, it, you know, it, it's not me, <laughs> it's him. <laughs> And I, I'm uh, very happy that I was able <laughs> to yeah. be involved in in creating that little bit of magic, you know. So. Yeah, and I was going to say, you know, watching these movies with my kids, uh, my five-year-old, we watched Return. It was my birthday in June last year, and they said, okay, we're going to watch a Star Wars movie today for Dad's birthday. They picked Return of the Jedi, and my youngest had never seen it before. And that part where Admiral Akbar kind of slumps in his chair and, you know, that he has that little emotional moment when the Star Destroyer is destroyed, um, or is it when the Death Star's blown up? One of those bits. She said, "I don't know if I don't know if he's happy or sad. I think he's happy, but he looks sad. But there, he, he, he's, is he? He is happy, isn't he, Daddy?" And I said, "Yeah, that's a moment of relief. Do you know that word, relief?" And you just think about those little moments that you managed to pull into that performance. Whether that was, I mean, was that? An, I mean, you're going to say yes, right? That was an intentional thing, or was it a directed thing? Was it something you ad libbed there? Because it really has still has resonance that moment. I have a I have an answer that I've said before. <laughs> okay. Um, it was actually a question from the, my friend. It's uh, the scene Pete. with Akbar in the moment <laughs> in the movie that I am the proudest of. Mm. The reason being that I'm just the right age that I came within. You know, um, in America in the Vietnam War. They got complained. There was a lot of complaints that it was all the blacks and the farmers who were going over there and getting killed and anybody who could go to university was getting out of it. So they started doing the draft process by lottery. And everybody who was of legal age got given a lottery number and you had to go get the newspaper and find out what the numbers were that week. And if you were above the number, then you still got to go to university. And if you were below the number, you got to go down to the draft board. So I came within about 100 people <laughs> of being above the number. So I didn't have to go down to the draft board. So I came that close to being drafted. And of wow. course... Um, that war caused very strong reactions in America. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Still yeah. causes very strong reactions. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's this lockdown where we all get emotional. <laughs> anyway, we did the whole battle scene. I was leader of the rebel forces. We took out the Death Star. And Richard Marklin, the director, he came over, he said, right, we've all won the battle. We want you all just to jump up. We're going to put the camera all around the 
cockpit and the spaceship and everything and we're going to just get little clips of everybody jumping up and running around and celebrating because we won won mm-hmm. the battle and all that and um, while they're setting up the shot and setting up the camera I started thinking about my own feelings mm-hmm. and I said well okay well we got rid of some really bad people on the Death Star we also got rid of a lot of people who were just chose the wrong place to get a job <laughs> who were just trying to send money home to the family <laughs> yeah yeah you know and a lot of our guys who didn't make it down the final trench and drop the bomb down the right spot in the thing while they were trying to protect the people who did and um, when they said turn over <laughs> instead of jumping out of my chair I slumped <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Because I believe that war is something to be proud of, but not to celebrate. Well said. Massive difference. Yeah. And so um, they came over and they said, God damn it, I told you to jump up and dance around and celebrate. And I said, you got Akbar's performance. If you want somebody to jump up, you're going to have to put somebody else in the suit. <laughs> uh-huh. Good for you. And I'm very proud of the fact that my moment stayed in the movie. Great. That's fantastic, Tim. And I think, you know, just bringing your personal experience to any performance is what sells it, you know, and you clearly had all of that stuff going through your mind at the time. You made me a very happy man that <laughs> your son could see it. <laughs> Yeah, that was my daughter actually, but she's oh, your yeah, daughter. she sorry. Yeah, yeah, she says she says does does he want a hug? She said to me. <laughs> <laughs> yes he did. <laughs> yes he did. <laughs> that's great. Oh man, that's uh that's that's a brilliant story. That's the thing that um the producers do not understand. <laughs> mm. Yes, they're puppets. And because they're puppets, and because you can't see the puppeteer's performance, or you can't see the puppeteer's face, it's instantly assumed that if the puppeteer asks for too much money, you can just go get the next puppeteer. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And put him in there. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, with Kermit, that wasn't the case because Jim died, and Steve Whitmire carried on doing a very good job mm-hmm. <laughs> of what of what he um, had seen Jim do before him but um, it's not true that because you can't see him you don't see the people you don't see their performance yeah absolutely I mean I've you know I've spoken to other puppeteers including Dave Barkley who you know well and uh, Toby Philpot and you know, they've talked to me about their performances on, on some of the films that we've just been talking about. And also, of course, The Empire Strikes Back in Dave's case and how you will be using your facial expressions. You know, <laughs> even though you know they're not going to go on screen in any form, you're, you're, because you're emoting in that way, your face is moving all over the place. And you're trying to replicate those feelings and somehow kind of channel it through your hands. I think that I've always found that really fascinating. And you know, oh, talking Jim about used to love to have the documentary guys turn the camera on the ones operating the animatronics, mm. <laughs> especially when animatronics were um, simpler, mm-hmm. <laughs> rougher. You would be doing the most extraordinary facial grimaces, <laughs> trying to will your character to get that final bit of expression, to get that final bit of emotion in, and um, people who never seen us <laughs> at the coal face performing get endless joy out of watching the people behind the camera more than the ones on the camera <laughs> because <laughs> well, you know what you willing our characters on not you know being so totally involved in the performance you, you don't realize what a gurneying fool you're actually looking like at the time so <laughs> well I, I should say at this point that you are one of the people that absolutely drew me into the whole creative process of filmmaking when I was 
you know, a, a kid. I went to see Return of the Jedi for my birthday and I bought the books and I bought them. I think I bought the storybook or my parents bought me the storybook and my sister wanted the behind the scenes book. And within minutes, I realized actually this behind the scenes book is far more interesting. And then, of course, I went and watched things like classic creatures and from Star Wars to Jedi. And I'd see you being salacious crumb and all that hello in TV land stuff. What's going on here? Hey. Hello in TV land. <laughs> you know what that was? Go on. The, um, I was working in Phil's shop. I knew that I was doing Salacious. I didn't, at that time, I didn't know I was going to be Akbar. I was just mm. building the character for whoever was going to be the character. And um, at the end of the day, at 10 o'clock at night, when everybody else would leave and go home, I would go in the back room and set up a video camera and practice because, mm -hmm. you know, when it came time to do it, I wanted to make sure I knew what I was doing with this character, <laughs> what the character could do. And that hello out there in TV land and all that, I was performer, director, lighting man, <laughs> and cameraman because somebody... I thought I'd erased all the evidence, but obviously I hadn't. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> found a, that VHS that I'd been using to rehearse with and made it into uh, a making. Like I said, we didn't we didn't realize we had to hide it all and erase it all back then because they didn't. You know, those were some of the first making ofs that that got yeah. seen. It was, that was a, a new process as well. I've probably seen those those uh, making ofs as much as I've seen the movies, and that that was what really turned me onto the process. That hang on, people make this stuff, you know, because as a kid, as a five six year old, like I thought these things just happened. I can have I this much fun and have a house like this as well. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you see, oh, crazy. Yeah, no, I'm I passed very on envious. what the hair gave me to you. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so is there is there anything? I mean. You're proud of your work. You're, you know, you're obviously a very skilled performer, and you've given a lot of people joy over the years. But is there anything, you know, you kind of reached the pinnacle of your industry in a way. But is there anything still outstanding, like a, an opportunity you're still on the hunt for? Um, <laughs> I, I describe it as waiting for the Messiah. Mm-hmm. When the animatronics came along, this old special effects guy said, "Yeah, you animatronics guys, you know, everything, everything now is everybody wants animatronics in their movie as well." But there's a honeymoon phase, you know, everything has to be animatronics, and then it'll just take its place in the um, arsenal of filmmaking. And there'll be times when that's the thing to do, and there'll be times when another method is the best way, and all that, you know, it'll just take its place. And then when animatronics got replaced by CG, <laughs> I was waiting for the honeymoon phase to get over and it could take its place. Mm. And unfortunately, that hasn't happened. And i am been waiting for the Messiah. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping it was JJ and it wasn't. Then somebody who understood animatronics and understood CG and knew when to give the job to which. <laughs> mm -hmm. And animatronics has a lot of things it can't do, but it has some things it does so much better than CG. And um, <laughs> I would love to have the opportunity to prove what I say is true, as Phil Tippett gave me the opportunity all those years, but... Um, I'm kind of losing hope now that I'll get the opportunity. <laughs> mm. We were filming a scene in one of those movies recently where the animatronics characters, there were seven characters who were just part of the crowd scene of this movie. And because the animatronics builders always try to do the best thing they've ever made, these characters were better than anything we ever had to film with ever in our careers hmm. yet 
you know, any one of them could have been chosen as the next Admiral Akbar to be a whole scene to himself, to be a whole strong character, to carry the plot line along. And um, in the end, not one of those characters was even in the movie. Out of boredom and desperation, we were writing our own sub-movies and because we controlled, you know, we were running the faces and the people in the suits and we were talking between ourselves and everything. And we were writing our own sub-movies that we were <laughs> filming in the backgrounds and carrying on <laughs> and everything. And it was uh, Anthony Daniels came around and we said, um, oh, Anthony, have a look at this, what we did. And we showed him this one scene that we'd created. And he went, has the director seen this? We said, no, he never comes and talks to us. He's got to see this. And he went away and he disappeared. But the direct note never showed up and he never saw hmm. <laughs> any of the stuff. And it, yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. The, it, it was a shame. It was there and what these characters were doing, if anybody had been interested and if anybody had thrown it in to their movie, <laughs> mm. would have been magical enough that people would have still been talking about it but there was nobody looking at it because um, because they were just shooting something so that it could all be finished and fixed in post yeah uh, what what is it that's missing you know without wanting to say anything detrimental towards jj abrams or to ryan johnson or anyone but oh dear don't some... no don't get me wrong i i no, I know, but I, I, the point... I, like, I like what he did with that movie. J.J. had, yeah. in The Force Awakens, he had an impossible job <laughs> mm -hmm. to please the died and the wolf fans, but you also have to make a movie that, if you'd never seen a Star Wars movie before, yeah. you'd still want to watch this movie. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, that's an impossible task, but for an impossible task, he did an absolutely brilliant job of getting mm. the balance Mm -hmm. between the two i agree yeah i just wish that <laughs> there'd yeah. been a bit of time to discuss things and yeah. show him show possibilities like i was allowed to do originally with the people you know but that doesn't happen now yeah and that's that's such a shame i mean someone like george lucas or jim henson seemed to have the ability to put the right people in the right place to do their job to the best of their ability. Whereas now the filmmaking industry, from what I can gather from talking to you and other people, it seems to be about reaching that target, reaching that deadline, is you know, reaching that the weekend return or whatever it is, more than the creative process itself. It seems to be it's in a very driven from period. a completely different place. Mm. It's in a very dark, uncreative period, the film industry. Mm. <laughs> mm. That was that was why Jim was a multimillionaire. Mm -hmm. I, I went to work for the Muppets because I, I was doing my own puppets and I was doing a bag puppet booth and doing shares, shows through the Northeast and at shopping malls and fairgrounds and everything and putting out the hat and earning my money that way. And I was so successful putting out the hat that... I had to take a cut in pay to go to work for Muppets. <laughs> mm -hmm. I was being paid less to work for the best puppeteers in the world than I was <laughs> doing my own puppet shows. But I wanted to know the secret of how you became a millionaire doing puppets. Mm -hmm. And that was Jim's secret. Was Unlike all the other bosses who had to be the boss and you had to do everything their way, Jim invited everybody to have an opinion and a point of view and he just sat back and listened to everybody and went, what a good idea. <laughs> Let's go that direction. And he, you know, he had the, um, the, the genius or the humility or whatever to not have, <laughs> to not allow his ego to take charge of everything, you know, to, yeah. to mm -hmm. allow the creative process to come out and flourish allow the magic moments to happen to allow I, I describe it as he found all these um, all of the people in his company were misfits who definitely didn't fit into the standard <laughs> way of becoming successful in society <laughs> mm -hmm. 
And uh, Jim gave us the opportunity in the playpen to play in, <laughs> to express yeah. ourselves. And then he he reaped the rewards of allowing all this creative explosion to occur. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I um and I'm not belittling him by saying that. That's no. <laughs> that's a no, that's a true and unique talent that most people in charge definitely do not possess. <laughs> the ability to mm. trust their employees. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no. I mean, it's happening I mean, it's 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 everywhere in my industry, you know. I'm a freelancer myself and uh you know, I've in in this lockdown period it's become I know very it apparent to me. a lot of stress. Huh? Domestically and financially, but always stay freelance. Yes, yeah. But I, what I was going to say is this period of time here, this uh, lockdown has really made me kind of realise who it is I want to go back and work for and who I don't want to go back to work for based on their reactions to this situation. Some some companies have just cast me aside along with other, you know, a huge amount of other freelancers, no contact, nothing Others have been phoning up on a fortnightly basis, weekly basis. How are you doing? How's the wife? How's the kids? Is there anything you want to chat about? Not that I feel like I need a, a counsellor, but, you know, at least they're saying things like when things do get back to a situation where we can go to work, we want you to work with us because we like working with you. And the difference that can make, you know, um, being valued in what you do is, is incredible. And uh, all power to people who take the time to, to make that happen. But, uh, you know, it's great that there's people like you that are willing to give their time and energy to to uh, to talk to the fans. And, uh, yeah, I really appreciate the time you've taken today. It's been it's, I've really enjoyed that. That was great. Well, I love hearing the story about your daughter asking about <laughs> Akbar. So, <laughs> yeah, I'll tell her that she he did need a hug. <laughs> Very definitely needed a hug at the time. Yes. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Tim Rose there, also known as Admiral Akbar, Sai Snootles, Salacious Crumb, some Muppets. Um, he's a good guy, good to chat to. And as I said, yeah, did get a bit emotional there at one point. Um, grateful to Tim for his time. And also thanks to my good pal Giles Torreira, who's been doing those little guitar moments for the podcast. Um, as for the next one, I don't actually have anyone lined up. Um, I'm kind of going back to work this week, COVID test tomorrow, shooting some stuff on Tuesday, Wednesday, and then back into my world of motorsport. Can't say I'm relishing the idea, to be honest, but there we go. Needs must, needs some money, after not really working that much for the last four months. Hopefully everybody's safe and well out there at the moment listening to this, and uh, remember, wear a mask, and generally just don't be a dick. <laughs>